So here we are. Here we go. You're ready. Our journey starts in the book of Romans, and I'm just going to start today, even though today we're ready to go. We're ready to roll. I'm going to read the first seven verses, and then we're going we're gonna to take like a 30,000 foot view of Romans. You're like, come on, we've been doing this a lot. We need to. We're going to take this overview look of exactly the book that we're looking at right now. We're going to paint this picture of what's happening. We open the Word of God, we want to ask ourselves, what is happening in the original setting? And what this does, and you're going to see this very clearly, this opens our eyes to the entire book. When we interact with, what, with what's called the context of the story, it opens our eyes to what God is telling us in this book. So we're going to spend some time today developing the story. We're going to talk about the story of the church of Rome. We're going to talk about the story of what God's doing in Paul's life. We're going to talk about the story of what God has done through the book of Romans, through history, the last 2,000 years. As God has changed people's lives with what we're going to interact with today and over the next uh, year plus. But I want us to start kind of kind of get us excited about this a little bit by simply reading the first seven verses. You get a feel for this book with verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the what? Gospel of God. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of God of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't even help getting through the first seven verses without wanting to stop multiple times and talk about it. Before we even do that, I want to think about, in a very practical sense, you and me. Have you ever experienced something so amazing that you can't help but tell everyone about it? You know what I'm talking about. Okay, in a very practical sense. Okay, I don't want to bring this down or anything like that, but in a very practical sense, for the foodies here, you know who you are. You go to that restaurant, you eat that dish, and you come home, and you want to tell all of your friends, that was amazing. You know what I'm talking about. That dish at that restaurant. What about for movie critics here? All those nonsense movies that you've watched through the years. And then all of a sudden you come to one and you're like, oh, that's awesome. The storyline's perfect. 
Rotten Tomatoes is almost perfect on it. It's awesome. This is a great movie, and you can't help yourself with saying to all of your friends, you got to watch that one. You know what I'm talking about. That was amazing. All right, for all of you sports fans here, have you ever found yourself after a game thinking that was amazing? That was the epic championship game. And you text all your friends and you're like, okay, I hope you had that one DVR'd. That one's recorded because we're going to watch that one again. That was amazing. This is just intrinsic to who we are is when we experience something amazing, we want to tell people about it. For outdoor enthusiasts here, you found yourself on that amazing hike with that amazing view. You can't help but say, hey, you got to experience you know what I'm talking about. Alright, I want us to approach the book of Romans thinking this. Why? Because over the last 2,000 years since we have this book, this has been the response of dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands, possibly even millions of believers who have interacted with the book of Romans and said, you got to get this book. And we're talking about Normal people in the body of Christ that have just on their lunch breaks opened up the book of Romans and read the truths of the scriptures and dug in saying, you got to get this. Let alone through church history. We're talking about 2,000 years of God using these formal theologians to dig into the book saying, wow. That was just intriguing. Over the last six months as I've been filling my mind with Different people in history that had, their lives have been changed through the book of Romans. There's some that we naturally go to as, as preachers of the gospel. A lot of guys will go to these type of guys, but think about a guy like this. Probably you don't recognize this temple drawing. He looks a little worried. This is Augustine of Hippo. Arguably, the most influential of all the church fathers in church history. This is a guy who penned theology, who processed theology that we glean from to this very day. I love the story of Augustine of Hippo. This was a man who enjoyed all of the sinful pleasures of this world. This is a man who was absolutely brilliant and articulate in everything he did. But this is a man who struggled with the depravity of human nature. This is a man who sat through a couple sermons by a guy by the name of Ambrose and who heard God drawing him to himself. This is a man who, I love the story, I'm not going to get into all of it, is a man who was compelled by the Holy Spirit of God to take the book and read it. He opens the book of Romans and it falls randomly. It's not randomly. It is of the Holy Spirit of God to Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And Augustine, 
of Hippo, Augustine, reads, Let us walk properly or honestly as in the daytime, not in revelings and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for your flesh to fulfill its lusts. Through Romans, by faith, Augustine's life was changed, and from that moment in history, millions of people have drunk from the theology, the rich theology of Augustine. Some of you might recognize this fellow, punk guy, Martin Luther. All right, we're going to jump in history a little bit. Obviously, we would find contention with some of Luther's theology, primarily in growth aspects of sanctification. This man, Martin Luther, the notable German reformer who God used to launch the Protestant Reformation, Luther, who for several years of his life, catch this, was absolutely miserable. He interacted every day, all day, as a monk with the Word of God. And he was miserable. And actually, as you go through the writings of Martin Luther, you find he hated God. He writes it. I hate this God. Why? Because he found in his life he could never please this God. So much more to the story of Martin Luther Martin Luther, as he interacted with Romans 1.17, he came to saving faith in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.17 says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther through Romans saw his life changed and consequently millions of others through his ministry. Some of you might recognize this fellow. Probably not. This is John Wesley. Again, we would have some contention with his way of processing sanctification. Nonetheless, Wesley, who in 1738 returned to England, catch this, he was a minister of the Church of England. He went to the New World, America, to minister to the Indians. He wasn't a believer. Came back to England as an overwhelmingly discouraged missionary. He realized that although he was teaching the Bible and ministering to people's needs, he himself was not saved by God's grace. Wesley, who by faith truly came to new life in Christ after he was confronted with the dynamic truth of Romans. Romans. God used Romans in his life. He taught that salvation was through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Through Romans, John Wesley's life was changed. Theologians over the past 2,000 years have been saying this book is 
Amazing. You got to get Romans. You got to jump into that book. I love how Martin Luther, back to the plump guy, I love how Martin Luther describes Romans. Of all he says about this book, I love what he says here. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. doesn't compare to Romans. I love what William Penn, though. You might know this guy. Also influential in the Reformation. Translator of the Bible into the English language. Also a martyr for the cause of Jesus Christ in his translation efforts. William Tyndale, as he translated through the scriptures, you find in the preface of his 1534 New Testament edition these words. This epistle is, and he said more about this, but this epistle is a light and a way unto the whole Scripture. I think it meet, or I think it necessary, that every Christian man, every Christian, not only know it by rote or memory, but also exercise himself therein ever more continually, as with, here it is again, as with the daily bread of the soul. No man verily can read it too oft or study it too well, for the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is, choosed, uh, the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. And the more groundly it is searched, the preciouser things are found in it. So great treasure of spiritual things lieth hid therein in the book of Romans. Guess what we're going to do the next year? We're going to mine treasures. These treasures that John Calvin, some of you might know of this guy, John Calvin, great Swift, notable Swiss reformer. Here's what he says in the same vein as William Tyndale. If we have gained a true understanding of Romans, we have opened a door to the most profound treasures of all of Scripture. The fact is, my brothers and sisters in Christ, God has dynamically used the book of Romans through the last 2,000 years to change people's lives. And I trust that God Almighty, through His Spirit, probably used the book of Romans to change your life already. Through Romans, God not only has changed the lives of individuals, and I want to catch this briefly, God has also used Romans to change the church as a whole. Not just individual worshipers of God, but corporate worshipers of God. God has used Romans, honestly, look through church history. He has used the book of Romans to change the course of history. Now, what am I talking about? Go check it out. Almost every single major revival 
or the Reformation or spiritual movement in the last 2,000 years has come on the backs of Paul's theology or Paul's writing of the book of Romans. God has used this book to change the course of human history. And I'm just going to propose this to you and me right now. Do you see a change that needs to happen in our culture right now? Okay, let's bring this down to earth, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you see a revival that needs to happen in Redding, California, in Shasta County, in the state of California, in the United States of America, around the world? You know, my prayer is that God would use this book to light a fire in our hearts over the next year. Sure, it does not and cannot stand alone. We need to understand that. Because Scripture is, is Scripture. It is whole. It stands together with 66 other wonderful books called the Word of God. But, if you picture it as this mountain range of books, and I love how uh, certain preachers, several preachers would refer to it as this. Um, in fact, one of my guys I like to listen to at times, Dave Messier sent me some sermons from Brian Borgman, a pastor near Reno, and he refer- references as, it as this. As you look at this mountain range of the books that God has, has given us, the 66 books of the Bible, I love to look at the book of Romans as the Mount Everest of God's revelation. Yes, we have all of these mountain ranges, all of what God is doing, all of these books matter substantially in our life. They are all sufficient for our growth and our, our daily walk. But the book of the Romans seems to float to the top when it comes to summarizing all of these areas of new life in Christ and daily growth in Christ and eternal promises through Christ. Today we have the absolute privilege of starting our journey through this amazing book and I, I'm telling you, I've been struggling with this. Your fearful guide. (laughs) I don't take this lightly. No way is this your fearless guide. We're charging into Romans, brothers, sisters. I'm with fear and trepidation entering into this book by God's grace. Your fearful guide, an insignificant man, a sinner only rescued by God's amazing grace, a desperately needy follower of Christ who myself will be clinging daily to the truths we will study in this book, a preacher of the gospel who will not do justice, I promise, to this amazing book. Nonetheless, I have the overwhelming task of guiding this journey. And so it will be a journey saturated with the sustaining grace of Almighty God. And so I pray, just as we talked last week, that we would be daily in prayer for each other as we walk through this book. That you would daily be in prayer for your pastor who's walking through this book and praying through this book. So, Let's start today by asking a couple questions about this amazing book. Let's start with this. How did we get Romans? How is it on your lap right now? 
They just pop into existence. Here it is. Boom. How is it on your device? Well, that's a little more complicated. But how did you get it in written form? How do you have that book? Well, let's just answer these very simply, and you know a lot of these answers, if not all of them. Let's start with this one. We have to start with this one. We have to. If we are going to rightly interpret Romans, we need to start with this first major truth of the Scriptures. It is this. Romans is inspired by God. Okay? We find this all the way through different parts of the Scripture, but I love how Paul summarizes how this works. 2 Timothy We read this last week. I'll review it right now. Here it is. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. There's much more to this, but that really does summarize it. Scripture is breathed out by God. As we looked at last week, our starting point is that Romans is God's word. It is propositional. It is absolute. It is authoritative. Highlight this word in your thinking. Truth from God. Romans not only is inspired by God, it is spoken by the Apostle Paul. We find this in the first word of the epistle. Paul. Not much contention, even among liberal theologians, about the fact that Paul was the author of the book of Romans. Paul tells us how this happens. Or sorry, Peter. I, I want to go to Peter. Because I love how Peter looks at this. In our minds, we're thinking, okay, I thought you just said God inspired it. Yeah, and, well, then Paul spoke it. How does that happen? Well, Peter answers this question very, very well for us in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 20, he says this, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is not just some cool ideas that the Apostle Paul came up with. Oh yeah, let's talk about justification. No. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, verse 21 says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. I love that picture. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. This book is inspired by God, spoken of by the Apostle Paul. What about this Apostle Paul? We can just briefly mention this. A lot of you know a lot about the Apostle Paul, but this is an an amazing man, saved by God's amazing grace. When you think about Paul, there was so much going on in the Apostle Paul's life. Arguably, there are those who say that Paul was the most brilliant person in the first century. A brilliant man. And all of these different things in his life. I mean, we think about his upbringing. He was brought up, entrenched in what is known as the Greek culture. Okay? As you see his testimony in Acts chapter 21 and 22, you see he's from a town called Tarsus in Sicilia. What is this place? When you look at Tarsus, this is one of those college towns. It is like the epitome of Greek culture is taught here in Tarsus. And this is where Paul was brought up. He was astute to Greek culture. But it wasn't just Greek culture. It was his Roman citizenship. Think about this. This Roman citizenship wasn't purchased because at that time in in history, you could purchase your citizenship for a large amount of money. Paul was not. And he 
clearly talks of this as you look through his life and testimony. He was born a Roman citizen. His Greek culture and upbringing, his Roman citizenship. But also I want you to think about his Jewish upbringing. He was a Jew. He was not just a Jew. He was taught in the school, actually taught personally by Gamaliel. I'm not going to go into what that means exactly, but it was a big deal. This guy was a big deal. And I got taught under Gamaliel. When you think about Paul's life, he was a Jew of Jews, as you find in Philippians. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And if you doubt that, as he clearly talks about in Philippians, he persecuted the way, the church of God. He was devoted to the Jewish way. That was this Paul. When you think about what's happening in Paul's life, he is astute in the Greek culture. If you, if you question that, by the way, go to the, in your scriptures to Mars Hill and see how he talks to these philosophers. He knew his stuff. He was educated in the Greek culture. He was backed by his Roman citizenship. He was steeped in his Jewish tradition. But all of that didn't hold a candle to what's coming next. On the road to Damascus, God Almighty grabbed Paul and said, I want you! His heavenly calling. I love going through passages in Scripture where Paul talks about this. Even in public arenas. One of my favorite passages is he writes about it. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already attained, Paul says, or or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that or of him for which Christ Jesus has laid hold on me. Some of your translations will use the word apprehended. And what's Paul saying? I'm going to apprehend. I'm going to grasp the one who got me. I want you, Paul. You're mine. That's what happened on the road to Damascus. And this Paul, later on in his life, From Corinth, some of you like to track with the timeline of the New Testament, from Corinth towards the end of Paul's uh, third missionary journey. So we're talking about around A.D. 55 to 57 in the timetable of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, by God's grace, through the moving of the Holy Spirit, pens the words that we have today. However, there were other people involved in this as well. Particularly in Romans chapter 16, we find this fella, Tertius. Tertius was the humble scribe, the secretary, a technical name for it is amanuensis. He helped Paul write. In chapter 16, verse 22, we find this little statement by Tertius. All these verses, all this mass of what Paul's writing, and then we come to 1622, and, and Tertius is like, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. (laughs) Now this is great. Simply enough, Paul dictated and Tertius endured the intense eye strain and writer's cramps. (laughs) That was Tertius. And I can picture this in my mind as Paul dictating this to Tertius and he's, he's going ahead and he's like, did you get that Tertius? Come on dude, speed up. This is good stuff. And Tertius is like, I can't man. I gotta switch over to my left hand. My imagination goes. <laughs> Nonetheless, this verse, this, this, this scripture, this Romans is delivered by Phoebe. Wonderful lady in our New Testament. 
servant of Jesus Christ. And I love this. Absolutely love this. Talking about how God uses women through the scriptures. This Bible is not some chauvinistic Bible we hold. And God uses and loves using his women of faith to advance his story. And he did it through the woman, this woman, Phoebe. This woman, Phoebe. Uh, you find this in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Phoebe, who was grounded in Corinth. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincreus, in Crea, Corinth, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a major helper of many and of myself also. Yes, assist this wonderful woman. Why? This godly sister was just used by God to protect and deliver this amazing letter. I mean, in your, imagine, in your imagination goes to the, the discussion of Paul and Tertius to Phoebe. Phoebe, please don't lose this letter. Don't let anybody take it. Protect it with your life. But that comes to the last part of this, which is so beautiful for every part of our scripture. We need to realize that yes, it was inspired by God. It was spoken of by the human author. It was written and often copied by different ones. God used, it was delivered. But overall, when we look at scripture, we need to realize that this was preserved by Almighty God. God was with Phoebe when she was delivering this. God was with the meticulous copiers and the translators through the centuries who took all of these transcripts and and copied them. And and God was with us as we open the Word today. He is with us in illumination as we talked of last week. I love how Peter says this. Quoting from Isaiah 40, in his quotes, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Catch that. It is through the living and abiding Word of God. Now he quotes from Isaiah 40, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this book on your lap right now has been preserved by God Almighty for 2,000 years, and we are privileged to study it today. When you open the book of Romans, your heart should be overwhelmed with a good and great God. We need to answer these questions. Why was Romans written? Romans was written, I think I might go a little quicker through this. Why do we have this book? It's not really known necessarily through the epistles as a as an epistle of occasion. And actually, he's not answering a lot of questions. He's dealing with a lot of theology. But nonetheless, there was a background to this book. Why was this written? And I think we need to first interact with this. This was written to relationally guide a rather confused church. You're like, what are you talking about? Okay, well, there's several clues in our New Testament about the church of Rome. And I just want to touch on some of these clues We want to start in Acts chapter 2, and I hope you can follow me through the story of Romans for just a minute. 
what's happening to this church that this has been written to. Acts chapter 2 is amazing. What's happening in Acts chapter 2? Pentecost. All right. 50 days after the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. After Christ has already ascended and he's told his, the believers, his followers, to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. We find here the establishment of the local church, the, the New Testament church. The church of Jesus Christ. Well, there's something beautiful happening in Acts chapter 2. Why? If you read through Acts chapter 2, and you, you come to a verse, and I'm not going to read it right now, but just highlight in your mind Acts chapter 2, verse 10, because this is where we first start thinking about Rome. Why? Because of all these people at Pentecost, there's a group of Jewish followers, Jewish worshipers of Yahweh, from Rome. Clearly stated. But then what happens at Pentecost? You know what happens in the story. Peter stands up, he preaches. God Almighty is moving through his spirit. 3,000 people were saved and baptized. And presumably, of that number, there was those of Rome. Now, of Jewish persuasion, because they've been worshiping God in, Jew, uh, in Jerusalem at the temple, now they are headed home. They are headed back to Rome, knowing as the body of Christ has spread that Jesus has told them through his commission, go into all the world and preach the what? Gospel. They have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a small starting up church in Rome starts to catch fire. Think about these people, though. You think about what's happening in Rome. They're primarily those who are of the Jewish tradition, right? Because they were worshiping God in, at Pentecost. But then you see Rome is a rough place. <laughs> in this small starting, starting up church, you would inevitably see Gentiles come to Jesus. We start seeing the church of God formed, not just Jewish believers, but Gentile believers coming to Jesus Christ. But then 15 years after the establishment of this church, there's something that major that happens in history that affects what's happening in Rome. And some of you already know what's, what I'm talking about. In fact, you know this because of a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. Rome being one of their primary homes, if not their primary home. A clue we find in Acts chapter 18. You don't have to go there with me, but I'll read it. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. This is toward the end of Paul's second missionary journey. We find a clue. Fifteen years after Pentecost, we find something's happening, has happened. Verse 1 of Acts 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Why? Here's the clue we need. Because Claudius had uh, commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Okay, so what's happening? This church, after 15 years, we have people that were more sympathetic to the, the Jewish roots. We have Gentiles who don't know a lot about the Jewish roots, but they, they know they got Jesus. We love Jesus. And then Claudius, through his edict, he's the Roman emperor at the time. In 49 AD, AD 49, what does he do? He kicks all the ethnic Jews out of Rome, which would include those in the church of Rome. So think with me. If we're the church of Rome, 
And all of a sudden, all of these people who have showed us the way of the Old Testament, they're no longer in our group. Who's going to be our leadership? And we're talking about almost purely Gentile believers who may not be that well educated into the ways of the Old Testament, but what do they know? They know they got Jesus, and Jesus got them. Okay, what happens five years after this? And I hope you're you're tracking with me through the history of this church. Five years after this, ironically, the adopted son of Claudius, his name was Nero. You know Nero because of what he blamed on the Jews. But ironically enough, guess who lets the Jews back into Rome? 54 AD, Nero comes into into, uh, his Roman emperorship. He lets the Jews back into the Rome. And now your imagination starts going, why? What's the church going to look like? All of these Gentiles are like, praise you God, we got Jesus. All these Jewish people coming and saying, what have you done? You don't even read the Old Testament Torah anymore, the scriptures that leads us to Christ. And they're like, we don't care, we got Jesus. And maybe I'm fabricating a bit, yes. But very likely, this is what's happening in the church of Rome. And so even though this is not an occasion letter, Paul recognizes this. Even though this is a church that loves Jesus, we very clearly see that not one apostle at this point has gone to give clarification to this church. Very practically, because they couldn't get into Rome. Now Paul, through the Spirit, as an apostle, one born out of due time, as he says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, he talks about in Philippians, he comes to the church, he has never been to the church, but he writes to the church of Rome and saying, hey, we've got to deal with some of this stuff. You ever wonder why Romans 9 through 11 stuck in there? Why is God all, uh, all of a sudden talking about these Jews? Well, here's a, one of the primary reasons, I believe, is he's telling these Gentile believers, no, God has a sovereign plan in how he's dealing with mankind. God Almighty has used the Jews to promote his redemptive plan. So in about a year from now, three quarters of a year, we'll get to Romans chapter 9. Keep this in mind. Not only to relationally guide a confused church, but to theologically establish God's new covenant people. Historically, at this point in the spread of the New Testament, the Church of Rome has not yet received any recorded apostolic guidance, as I just said. Paul, who had never personally visited Rome, now presents for them a summarized theological treatise. This is a handbook of theology. This is a thesis on theology. And this is a theology that is intended to reach to all generations. I love this, because this is what God does. Paul sees this church and he writes to them to line out God's redemptive plan. As we will see over the next year through Romans, Paul anchors the theology of all believers for all generations deep in God's sovereign plan for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. One other quick reason that I've just mentioned today is this. Paul writes this book through the Spirit to practically prepare for his own visit to Rome. Paul had not been to Rome. He had not seen these people. He knew several of them. He had not actually been to Rome. 
as we'll see as we get to Romans 15, one of the major reasons Romans was written was to prepare Roman believers not only for his visit, and I love this, but Paul was preparing them for missions to a new frontier. Amen, Brother Bill? Missions to a new frontier. So what he's doing, he's writing them, exciting them about obedience to the Great Commission. Hey, I'm going to come visit you, but guess what? I'm not coming to visit you just because I want to see you. We're setting up, we're setting up a stronghold, a sending station to go reach Spain. So even though Paul hadn't yet been to Rome, he's writing, preparing them to obey the great commission of Jesus Christ to go into Spain. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 15. I want to conclude our our overview today with a summary of themes. What is Romans all about? This will be a summary, a quick summary, not only because I've talked for a long time today, Uh, but because we're also going to reach each one of these themes on a weekly basis. This is just going to kind of whet our appetite for what's coming. When you open the book of Romans, in the first chapter of Romans, very quickly you're going to come to verses 16 and 17, as Jim just read a minute ago, and you're going to see, I believe, and what other, several others that have interacted and proclaimed through Romans, you're going to find this. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 as is on the back of your handout. For I am not ashamed of the what? Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, we're talking chronologically here, to the Jew first and also to the Greek now. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Some of your translations will say from faith to faith. We'll get to that. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is Romans all about? The righteousness of a sovereign God. Let us get this. In different forms, we will see signposts on our journeys. You're traveling in your car with your family. How long before we get there, you're going to see signposts. We're going to see signposts through our journey through Romans. And these signposts, on these signposts, you're regularly, I mean, we're talking over six, right around 60 times in the book of Romans, we're going to find the root, the Greek root word, righteousness. Righteousness of God. Righteousness of God, righteousness of God, unrighteousness of man, declaration of righteousness. All the way through this book, we're going to find out more and more about God's righteousness revealed. In fact, if you would look with me at that outline I put on there. We'll describe a little bit more of this righteousness, a lot more of this righteousness as we go along. This righteousness being a conformity to a standard. The word pictures of a balance in the marketplace revealing a just, fair balance. When we talk about the righteousness of God, we are talking about God's perfect and just conformity to what? His own holiness. That's what righteousness is. As you look at the major movements through the book of Romans, that little outline we put on there, which is very summarized, 
these signposts, you're going to find the righteousness of God in the introduction as we're looking at right now, verse 17. You're going to find God's righteousness revealed through this word, condemnation. This is God's punishment of sin and the sinner. We're going to find God's righteousness revealed in justification. This is God's declaration of righteousness on the sinner through Jesus Christ. We're going to find God's righteousness revealed in sanctification. This is God's powerful work of growth in righteousness for all true believers. We get to chapter 9 through 11. We're going to find God's righteousness revealed through his sovereign plan. This is God's expression of sovereign righteousness through his working of history. When we get to chapter 12, all the way to the end, to 15 actually, halfway through 15, we're going to find God's righteousness revealed with shoes on. Okay, what am I talking about? Transformed living. You can't get through the book of Romans without a so what. And that's what 12 through 15 is. Okay, we've talked about God's righteousness revealed through Jesus Christ. Now what? Live it out. You find so what's through the book of Romans, but just wait. It's going to be fun when we get to chapter 12. How the gospel changes lives. These main movements all answer, and I think we need, you can put this in your head. I had a seminary professor that got this question stuck in my head. A theme of the book of Romans in this question. And here's the question that we're going to think through as we go through the book of Romans. Here it is. How? How can a righteous God make an unrighteous man righteous and do it in a righteous way? That's the question we're going to answer through the book of Romans. How can a righteous God take an unrighteous man and make him righteous, but do it in a righteous way that conforms to his own holiness? And the answer we're going to find with every single time we talk over the next year, year and a half, or 20 years, however long it takes to get through this, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that leads us to the next theme in the book that we're going to see over and over again is the gospel of the glorious Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Through the book of Romans, we will be regularly in awe of the good news of Jesus Christ, a gospel that should be heralded every Sunday from this pulpit and proclaimed to ourselves every day of our lives. Also through this book, this study, we will be overwhelmed with enablement of the powerful spirit. Again, you cannot get through Romans without shoes on. What do I mean? Without being compelled to obey. Obey and obey and obey. From youngest to oldest in the room, here's the point. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is not meant to be just embraced up here. It is meant to completely change our lives. Write this down, Romans 8, 9 through 10, because we'll get there in time, but you get a sneak peek into what the Spirit of God is doing to enable this new walk in Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 8. Brothers and sisters, you cannot get through Romans without considering that God wants to change lives. So what? I just want to ask this question. Did you see it clearly on your handout there? 
It's a little different than what you might expect from a so what, but nonetheless, this is one I want to ask. Here it is. How big is your God? Seriously. I was in high school. I started interacting with the Book of Romans. In fact, when I was a junior in high school, we'd have different opportunities to preach as high school guys, and our youth pastor would get us ready, and we'd preach. I preached on Romans chapter 13, put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. Same passage that got Augustine. But I was constantly interacting with how big is your God? The next decade of my life, 20s to 30s, I taught through the book of Romans to our youth group. I was a youth pastor. Well, we went verse by verse through the book of Romans. Constantly what God was doing is saying, hey, Andrew, how big is your God? The next decade of my life, at 30 or 40, I was involved, our family was involved up in Leadville, Colorado at a wonderful church at the top of the mountains. I preached through the book of Romans. And God was constantly saying, Andrew, how big is your God? So I've been studying through this study and God revealing new things to me every single day as I walk through these things about His goodness and grace. I'm going to tell you what God is doing to me every single time I open this. Is Andrew, how big is your God? How big am I, Andrew? I have plans till the day I die and God can obviously derail this plan, but every decade of my life to work in depth through the book of Romans as God uses this book to transform my life sure I might scratch the surface in some of these things and 10 years from now I'll look at it and it's like man how did I come what but I know God's using this book in my life to answer this question Andrew how big am I how big is your God and I have that same question for every single one of you here today youngest to oldest there's some young ones here today listening to this man I'm ready for that pastor to stop talking (laughs) but I want you to ask yourself this question young ones how big is your God Teens in this room right now, working through different things in your own life, ask this question, how big is your God? Moms and dads in this room right now, young adults, how big is your God? Grandmas and grandpas in this room right now, who've heard about God all your life, who know about Jesus, you might be saved for the last 65 years. The question is this, how big is your God? How God big is your God. Satan loves to minimize the sovereignty of Almighty God. Godless culture loves to minimize the sovereignty of Almighty God. Misguided theology loves to minimize the sovereignty of Almighty God. But Paul, through Romans, is ardently arguing this. Don't minimize God. God is God and I am not. Brothers and sisters in Christ and friends, you're going to hear that one statement probably hundreds of times over the next year. God is God, and I am not. Do you believe it? Will you embrace the big God of Romans? My goal through this study is that we would see God bigger than we ever have before. That we would choose big God theology, not big me theology. That through Romans, lives would be truly transformed through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That through Romans, people would come into these doors and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
That through Romans, there would be people that have sat in these pews for decades that would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Will you embrace the big God of Romans? That with Paul, we could truly say this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So God, I pray that you would continue to light this fire in our hearts for you. Give us grace, we pray. I pray that you'd help us as we walk through this to see a more beautiful Jesus. To worship a bigger God. Not to try to put you, God, in a box of our own understanding to constantly realize that you're a great God. You're a big God. I pray, God, that you would do this work of grace in my own heart and every one of us here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, my friends here today, it is no mistake that God has brought you here. I'm going to close out this morning with a simple prayer for every single person here, and this is the prayer for my own heart. That my life would be changed as I work through Romans. That your life would be changed as we work through this wonderful book. some even here today that have massive questions about what we talked about I would encourage you you, don't abandon ship stick in it for the long haul let this journey of God's grace through the book of Romans be used to transform your life your family's life Maybe some of you even here today that have burdens on your heart. I'm going to close out with a song of praise to our God that He is mighty to save. And then during and after that prayer, there are going to be chaplains at the front that would love to pray for you, with you, over any burden that you have on your heart right now, including potentially these questions you have about your eternal standing before God. I would encourage you, don't ignore what God the Holy Spirit is doing in your life right now to draw you to himself. Come to Jesus. The just shall live by faith. Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If you have come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, are you daily living by faith for this amazing God? God, we want to thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for the time we could spend even interacting with these thematic verses through the book of Romans. And I pray that every one of us would be compelled, challenged through this study to love you more deeply know you more passionately to serve you more faithfully 
Thank you for this fine Sunday morning where we could study. What a gift it is from you. 